So let's take a break, shall we, from the election. Don't worry, there's plenty of time for us to talk about it since apparently we will be experiencing the election until the universe experiences heat death. But there are other things still happening in the business world, I promise you. So this week, I want to talk to you about two tech giants, Apple and Amazon. And we're going to be looking at a slightly less flashy side of their business. But it's undoubtedly some of the most important. With Amazon, we're talking about trucking. Now, you may have seen on the road a rash of Amazon-branded delivery vans dropping off your paper towels and your batteries and your wildly overpriced exercise equipment. And if you're really lucky, you may have seen those vans' big brothers, semi-trailers, also Amazon-branded, driving all over the freeway. It's part of a big push that Amazon has made to own more pieces of the delivery ecosystem called the Middle Mile. And on this episode of the Informations 411, our Amazon reporter Paris Martineau delivered, get it, a great in-depth look that explains why Amazon has been investing so much in owning the Middle Mile, and why you should expect to see even more trucks on the road, and how Amazon delivery maybe has become the next Amazon Web Services, going from bits to atoms, as they say. Then I'm talking to Wayne Ma, who wrote about Apple's supply chain and its fraying relationship with Foxconn. That's the Taiwanese manufacturer that makes some of its most popular products. It's really an amazing story. Wayne and I only kind of scratched the surface on all the crazy, crazy backstories that he dug up as he reported the piece out. So after you listen to the episode, I highly recommend you go read the piece. So don't worry, we will soon get back to whiling away our lives talking about this election. But for now, let's dive into some logistics. All right, Paris, so you wrote this story that I was very grateful for because it finally answered the question for me of when I'm driving on the freeway and I see giant semi-trailers with Amazon plastered on the side of it, and I think, what the hell is that all about? Um, you had a very in-depth story that explained uh, what the hell that was all about. So why is it that when I and many other people are on the road, you can see giant Amazon tractor trailers. Amazon is kind of working to bring all the different aspects of its uh, supply chain and delivery operations in-house. Um, you see this, I guess, uh, most commonly in, you know, the Amazon branded vans that drop off packages. But as of late, it's recently kind of moved to the middle mile aspect of logistics with um, Amazon branded trailers and tractors, those things that um, pull the trailers on the road. So l let's break it down just a little bit here um, for, for, for the glossary definitions. Explain to me the different miles. What is the, you know, I guess first mile, middle mile and last mile? Yeah. So, I mean, starting in like 2014-ish is when Amazon uh, first started even looking at its logistics operation in this way, um, breaking it down into first mile, which is kind of... Um, ocean freight shipping, just like the first mile of getting stuff from like a manufacturer to Amazon facilities or um, just like two ports and whatnot. And then middle mile, which is going to be transporting of goods uh, between Amazon facilities or between an Amazon warehouse and say a post office or something like that. And then last mile is going to be the last part of delivery. It's going to be from the post office to your door or increasingly uh, from an Amazon delivery station to your door. And these delivery stations, which Amazon has been building out hundreds of in the last uh, year or so, they uh, operate kind of like little Amazon-exclusive uh, post offices, uh, taking packages in and then handing them off to drivers to drop on your doorstep. Yeah, so there's been this evolution from you know, the beginnings of Amazon as an online e-commerce business to 
you know, where it is now, where it seems like they've increasingly moved away from reliance on whether it's the U.S. Postal Service or UPS or FedEx. Um, I mean, what's what is the strategy here? What, why do they feel the need to bring it all in house? Amazon's shipping costs have been going way, way up. I mean, as it increases uh, the number of Prime members it has, that becomes a essential part of its business. Shipping is really expensive and getting packages to people in one or two days, kind of delivering that promise is quite costly. By bringing those costs in-house and bringing the operations in-house, Amazon not only has a way to, in the future, kind of minimize the costs, but to have more control over its whole logistics operation when things uh, inevitably go wrong. I mean, right now, has everything that's happened has really illustrated how important this is when you have, you know, the post office slowing down um, due to mail-in ballots and kind of a, a deluge of online orders uh, that affects Amazon. And in addition, when you have, you know, supply chains and everything breaking down and a trucking shortage that's exacerbated by COVID, that affects Amazon as well. So the easiest solution for a company of Amazon size and with that kind of capital is, okay, we're going to buy as many parts of this as we can so that we won't have to deal with other people's delays. Yeah. Uh, so I want to zoom in a little bit more on, on the middle mile stuff. And you spoke to an expert in the space, Kathy Robertson, who I believe uh, you spoke to while she was cooking dinner. Yeah, she was uh, in the middle of uh, meal prepping for that day. I am, uh, I am preparing dinner oh, uh, ahead nice. of time. I hate cooking. I hate it. I hate it. Me too. But anyway, she was basically saying that, you know, this is something that Amazon and I guess other e-commerce outfits could have done years ago. I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah. So, I mean, these companies could have obviously for the last couple of years, it's often been about outsourcing. Outsourcing your warehousing, outsourcing usually to a 3PL or a 4PL. Well, now retailers, including Amazon, are all about that control of the supply chain. As of late, um, within like the last year or two, it's become increasingly apparent that outsourcing has its costs. I mean, both in the literal expense, uh, sort of the word, and in time. Sometimes the easiest way to cut down on shipping time and kind of uh, rein in any potential delays or factors is to bring it all in-house. And you mentioned it very briefly earlier, just in talking about, you know, how the pandemic has, has caused people to be ordering even more stuff online. I mean, has that supercharged Amazon's need to control this middle mile and want to put and buy, you know, lease or whatever, even more trucks and control, you know, even more aspects of this, you know, this part of the shipping operation? There was already a truck driver shortage in the U.S. before the pandemic hit, but the pandemic has exacerbated that and made it a lot more expensive to get contract truck drivers to haul your loads versus a competitor. Amazon has, over the last couple of years, kind of increasingly been bringing its trucking operations in-house, um, relying on more and more contractors. I think by the end of 2019, a source had told me that two-thirds of Amazon's freight was being hauled by its own kind of transportation network of independent contractors. But since the pandemic has hit, the kind of capacity crunch that the whole transportation industry has been facing has caused Amazon to have to turn to some bigger companies again just to, you know, kind of make ends meet. Because Amazon is both experiencing this huge surge in online ordering 
as well as dealing with a dearth of supply when it comes to all these different essential aspects of the uh, supply chain. Right, right. And, you know, looking down the line, you know, let's say we have, you know, God willing, a vaccine and, and, and things return to some semblance of normalcy. I mean, what's the end goal here? Do you think that they're really looking to have 100% of their packages shipped through, you know, middle and, and last mile couriers that they own, essentially? Yeah. So, I mean, Amazon's goals are twofold. I mean, one, it wants to become the primary carrier of its own goods when it comes to um, transporting things from fulfillment center to fulfillment center or to a delivery station. But according to some of the sources that I spoke with, Amazon also aspires to become a top five U.S. freight brokerage in trucking, which means kind of the companies, if you're say a small like computer company and you need to move a couple uh, trailers of uh, your goods back and forth you would get shipping capacity by reaching out to one of these freight brokers and buying capacity through them amazon wants to attract and sell its services to both small and medium businesses and eventually large enterprise customers like Colgate Palmolive or uh, Dollar General and whatnot. So even stuff that isn't ultimately shipped through Amazon, like I could buy online, Amazon, because it has such a massive fleet, would be controlling, you know, shipping logistics uh, on that end. Yeah, it's um, quite an ambitious goal, but the company seems really well prepared for it. They already, I mean, have a mastery of logistics and are handling most of their own shipping needs, which are huge through their kind of new in-house transportation network and they want to expand that and then be able to sell a significant amount of their services to other people and this works out really well in amazon's favor because amazon in the fourth quarter of the year amazon needs significantly more capacity than any other quarter i mean it just is by far the busiest and it needs let's say in the fourth quarter we'll need a thousand truckers and then the rest of the quarters maybe 200 each Part of the goal is it wants to have a way to keep those 1,000 truckers around and in its network the other three quarters of the year. And that could be through doing work for other companies. And then in the fourth quarter, it'll gobble up all that capacity for itself. Yeah, yeah, uh, man. But the ambition is clearly there. And God, sometimes I feel like in America right now, we're all just slowly moving towards being a giant company town. Uh, and and. That company town is Amazon, and will one day all work for them. Yeah, I mean, it. Uh, <laughs> every industry, it seems, is a, a handful of companies, uh, and increasingly becoming uh, fewer and fewer. It's certainly a choice we've all made. <laughs> yes, uh, man, that's a whole other topic. Uh, anyway, Paris, great story. Uh, clearly, there's a lot more to come on that, so I look forward to chatting it, about it with you soon. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Right, Wayne. So, you know, when I think about Apple's rise into becoming this global super power and, you know, super corporation over the last 15 years, the company that comes to mind the most as enabling it, uh, to me at least, is Foxconn, uh, this huge, you know, manufacturing powerhouse. And you wrote this amazing story that kind of digs into the fraying relationship between Apple and Foxconn over the past couple of years. But before we even get into that, could you just explain a bit, like, the role that Foxconn has had in manufacturing Apple products over the years? Sure. So Apple's a bit unique in that it doesn't really own the factories uh, that make its products. It uh, outsources all of that. 
And they do that because, you know, they don't want those kind of assets on their books, but also because they can, you know, play suppliers off of each other and get kind of the best price for these products. And so over the last 20 years, their biggest contract manufacturer um, is Foxconn. And Foxconn is responsible for a lot of different Apple products, uh, the components that go into those products, um, and most notably the iPhone, where they make probably between 60 and 70 percent of the world's iPhones. Yeah, yeah. So uh, all of this kind of leads to, you know, what's been happening over the last few years, which is what you wrote about, which is that, you know, Apple has become this literally $2 trillion company. And Foxconn has, its fortunes have, have kind of gone a, a slightly different direction. Why don't you explain to me why it is that, you know, Apple has done so well, whereas Foxconn, even though it's their major client, um, has kind of struggled in more recent years? Sure. A lot of it, a lot of people compare it to the the garment industry. So, you know, Gap is the brand that you know that makes the clothes. Um, but you never hear uh, how well the, the factory in Bangladesh or, you know, does. And, um, sure. and you know, Gap captures like most of the profit off of that because it, it does the branding. It does the marketing, right? It designs the clothes. And so Apple and Apple's relationship with Foxconn is very similar in that, uh, you, know, e- you know, even though Foxconn makes Apple's products, you know, they don't necessarily capture the profit from them. In fact, if you look at their earnings, you know, Apple's profit margins on the iPhone are, you know, nearly 40%. And Foxconn's overall margins are maybe like 6%. Yeah. And, and I mean, how has this trended over time? I mean, Apple's always been incredibly margin focused. Is, you know, from Foxconn's perspective, has, have things gotten worse over the years? Has Apple like squeezed them? They definitely have. So, you know, when I spoke with you know, dozens of former Foxconn employees, many say that uh, every year it's just getting harder and harder and harder to find ways to make more money. You know, Apple basically forces them to kind of disclose what their costs are. And, you know, if it doesn't seem reasonable, they'll say like, well, why are you charging this much for this price? You know, why are you charging $100 for a hammer or $200 for a screw? You know, our competitors don't do that. And right. so um, it's gotten very hard for Foxconn to like make money from this, but uh, they still do. And that's because even though their margins are in the single digits, the volumes are huge, right? Bigger than any other consumer electronics firm. And, that, and that's sort of where, you know, so that scale is what kind of keeps them going. Right. But it also seems that there's increasing competition and Apple's able to play other manufacturers against each other in order to get the best deals. Um, I mean, is that something that has also kind of increased over the last couple of years to Apple's advantage that there are other manufacturers that could theoretically get this business that Apple can use kind of as leverage against Foxconn? It definitely has. And so it's kind of a complicated relationship because on one hand, um, Foxconn is facing competition, especially from new Chinese companies that are becoming able to kind of do some of the things that before only Foxconn could do. But at the same time, there's no other company that can provide the kind of capacity that Foxconn has. And so Apple and Foxconn are kind of constantly doing this dance where Apple can pressure Foxconn, but, but they, they can do it only to a point. But, but most people at, who talk about the relationship, either at Apple or Foxconn, say Foxconn still gets kind of the short end of the stick. Some people describe it as uh, an arranged marriage almost, that you know Apple and Foxconn don't particularly like each other, but they're kind of stuck together. In your story, you have all these crazy stories. You know, you spoke to, it sounds like a lot of ex-Foxconn employees. And I really loved, you know, some of the different examples that Foxconn has used over the years as their margins have been pressured uh, to try and cut costs. Uh, one of them was how they used Apple-owned equipment to make devices for other companies. Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of illustrates the cat and mouse game that the two play with each other. So, 
basically, you know, I spoke to several employees who said that in 2015, you know, Apple buys all the equipment that's used in the factory. That's actually something that is important to know. Uh, Foxconn, or in the in the past, that was something that Apple didn't do, and so Apple just kind of got billed for it. But Apple, over time, realized, well, if we can control the cost of the equipment, that allows us to like see what the price is and make sure the price is accurate. And so Apple now buys a lot of the manufacturing equipment, including the testing equipment um, that's used to make you know products like the iPhone. And so Foxconn uses this equipment in a practice known as consignment. Uh, the story that I was told was that uh, some of this testing equipment, you know, was uh, used for other, you know, products that weren't Apple products, you know, like for Apple's competitors, like like Huawei, for example. And, uh, you know, when I spoke with the employees, they said, well, when did people notice these, this, you know, the equipment was missing? They say, well, we always, you know, ask for more than we need. And so a lot of this equipment was idle. And, you know, Apple audits, you know, these production lines, but usually we kind of know about it in advance. And we, you know, in, in this case, we shipped it back before you know, Apple ever found out. Well, but now they do, they must found out because you wrote about in the story. I mean, was there any, was there any outcome or response from Apple uh, that you've heard about since this kind of story got out there? Yeah. So uh, when I, when I told Apple employees about this, they said, well, maybe that did happen. But, you know, over time we started putting RFID tags on all the equipment to, to make sure we could keep track of it all. So, you know, Foxconn wouldn't be able to do something like this. Yeah. Amazing. Um, and so one of the other things you brought up in your story that I thought was pretty interesting was the AirPod Pro, which the product we were actually just talking about before we started recording, um, you know, hugely sophisticated and, and complex thing. Uh, what, what was kind of the story about the AirPod Pro and Foxconn? So Foxconn never assembled the AirPods, even the first or second generation ones. That, that was always given to Chinese companies, uh, Chinese or Ta other Taiwanese companies. And it's not really clear why Foxconn didn't get the business, but they did make a huge play for the AirPods Pro in 2018. You know, the people I spoke to said that they worked on a like a very like a very early prototype, almost like a, they called it a pre-proto, and that uh, they thought they were going to move to the next stage of trial production. And so even before Apple gave them the contract, they already sunk, you know, money into retrofitting like a new building um, and, you know, setting up like a new production line for it. And then Apple didn't give them the contract. <laughs> and so they had to kind of absorb the cost of all this. And uh, the contract ultimately went to uh, two up and coming Chinese suppliers um, instead. Interesting. Well, so, so then that leads me to like my, la my last question here, which is, is there a future you can envision that Apple and Foxconn are fully divorced and, and, and Apple is just is able to, for whatever reason, transfer all that business to Chinese suppliers or, or, or any other manufacturers? Um, or are, are these guys wedded forever, you think? I think they're wedded forever. And the reason I say that is because one of the factories where Foxconn makes the iPhone has you know, nearly 240,000 people, uh, workers, you know, working on um, Apple products. And no other company can come close to that. No, you know, I've looked at some internal data that shows that their nearest competitor maybe can employ at most like, you know, 60,000 or 70,000 people. And so until you can find a company that can, you know, employ like hundreds of thousands of people at once, I think, I think they're going to be, they're going to be stuck together. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, amazing. Well, anyway, there's a bunch more anecdotes in the story that people should check out. We only really scratched the surface. Um, so I recommend our listeners check it out. Uh, but thanks for joining, Wayne. Yeah, thank you. Quick addendum to the end of the segment here. So Foxconn did not answer our detailed questions prior to this article going up. But after it was published, 
Foxconn filed a statement with the London Stock Exchange that called the findings in the piece, quote, unsubstantiated and unfounded, and that it had a, quote, long and mutually rewarding relationship with this customer and that the partnership continues to go from strength to strength. That is today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. As always, appreciation goes out to Ariel Markowitz for producing, Paris Martineau, Wayne Ma for participating in the interviews. Have a good weekend, everybody. Get some rest. I'll see you back here next week.